0: Hello and welcome to the A440 Podcast, the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with. I'm your host, Charles Fiore. We're listening to Amber Green, a composition by Forrest Covington Jr., the special guest of today's episode and last week's as well. That's right, today we conclude a two-part series, and man, it's been a ride. Now, if you're just jumping in for the first time, I highly recommend going back and listening to the previous episode and then coming back and checking out part two. If you listen to this podcast at all, you know that I am a fan of digression. If you can use any term to describe my conversational style, I think you would call it freewheeling. Part of the excitement of this podcast for me is discovering where a conversation might lead, uh, usually somewhere unexpected. But uh, even... Within the parameters of this particular podcast, this conversation with Forrest Covington Jr. set a new benchmark, if you will, for digression and breadth of uh, topics covered. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I enjoyed uh, producing it for you. So a little background on these episodes. I recently finished a book, uh, Music, Music After the Fall, Modern Composition and Culture After 1989 by Tim Rutherford Johnson. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is an academic text, okay? It's dense. The typeset? uh, There's no blank space on the page. Uh, And the overall approach to the subject? I mean, it's not messing around. It's an exhaustive survey of modern classical music and worth the effort. We can't even really call this style of music classical anymore. Uh, Other terms like art music or soundscapes are really more appropriate, as composers use new technologies to explore Not only the capabilities of classical instruments, but everyday sound as well, from from the human voice to waves to urban industrial environments and more. So all of this was kind of bouncing around my head uh, during my conversation with Forrest. And and also, I'd I'd heard he'd once built a Ramalan orchestra out of junk, so I wanted to ask him about that, obviously. Uh, And finally... I believe it's worth mentioning Forrest has a physical condition uh, that's only alluded to in the interview, not named. But this condition explains some of our conversation about how the active composition uh, of creation has changed for him now that he's no longer a young whippersnapper composer with something to prove. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation with Forrest. I hope you do too. And as I said, we open this episode with uh, Amber Green. In just a couple of seconds, we'll hear some of Forrest's composition, O'Brien's Jig. And we'll close out the episode uh, later on with Forrest's composition and immorality, uh, setting the poetry of Ezra Pound to music. Enjoy. Um, But tell me about what you guys did. What was that all about?
1: Well, one of the uh, other musical influences on me that was very profound was a fellow named Harry Parch. And I got into Harry Parch before Harry Parch was, was very well known. OK. I mean, literally, I, I, um, a friend of my father said, hey, listen to this. This guy makes all his own instruments. So uh, my art friend, who has the studio in Burlington, is a woodworker. He had a full wood shop. And so when I first started teaching at Harbridge, they had no money and they had nothing. Right. I had basically a, a classroom with several broken pianos. I said, I've got all these kids. I've got to teach. What do I do? Well. Um, They were also throwing away old bookshelves, and all these old bookshelves had pieces of wood that were a certain size. So I thought about it for a minute and said, you know, I could make little four-string hammer dulcimers. And so that's what I did, and I called them twangers. And there were four notes that were, you could not play a dissonance on it. So once again, a little impressions in there. There were uh, four to six notes. I had made one that was twelve notes, um, but some of those notes were duplicated. And then I made a little wooden mallets for them so the kids could play those and learn rhythm and and uh, and it's mostly rhythm. And 90% rhythm, music is 90% rhythm. Yeah. And so when I did that, I said, well, you know, uh, it'd be nice to have something to play along with these twiners. And now, of course, I had tuned and rebuilt pianos for years, so I had no problem building any gadget. Gotcha. You know. So uh, I went making a living again, right? Right, right. Uh, so, I well, said, so, well, you know, I just, I had some leftover conduit from the construction work in my uh, studio. So I started cutting that to lengths. So I looked up formulas and made like little four-note chime sets. And they just kind of mushroomed from there. Nice. Next thing you know, I had uh, uh, wood drums, um, several different kinds of drums. I had uh, uh, metal drums, like uh, almost like steel drums made out of the bottoms of the of, uh, Old gas cans, old jerry cans, wow. and so, and I figured that since Harbridge, the school had an aesthetic of, of environmentalism, I thought, what better than recycled materials to make a gamelon? Yep. And the gamelon method, the gamelon technique, is an easy one to transmit. Okay. Um, Everybody has their own rhythmic role and okay. their own same way of notes. And so, you know, basically, you, if you're playing a certain instrument, you know what your role is. There's no confusion about that. So You knew what to do. Uh, and uh, it actually turned out to be uh, rather uh, successful at first, as, you know, when I had the time. Later on, in the, in the years, a few years later in the school, they had to change to a different structure, and I didn't have the, the time scale possible to, to keep that up. So, I, I will actually either send you the video or uh, see if I can find the CD oh, yeah. that has that. On.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see the video. The, uh, I was. I got to admit, I wasn't familiar with that before. Uh, but Jonathan kind of sold me on talking to you through that uh, little anecdote, you know. And I, so I, I, I'd never even seen a uh, gamelan orchestra before. But just hypnotizing. I can't. I can't get enough of it. Just watching other. What I oh, think YouTube was great was that
1: when I did that, uh, I actually got in contact with it. Apparently it attracted the attention of somebody who did the gamelan orchestra at UNC. Oh. And so they said, you know, would your kids like to play in a real gamelan orchestra? I said, yeah, they would. Yeah. And so I was able to get some students from the school. I think the oldest was seventh grade. Right. To go over and uh, play. They were actually taught to play and they already knew what to do. Right. Oh, okay, I'm going to play every two beats. I'm going to play every four beats. They already knew that because I had showed them that from the you know, the gamelon method, if you will. Gamelon playing is a great hobby for a lot of people that otherwise don't know anything about music because once you know what your role is, you can go on forever.
0: I see. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, is just watching an orchestra play, everyone, like, watching the whole thing, it's very hypnotizing, but then the individual players are just... That you seem to be doing there, mm-hmm. taking their responsibility for their role well, on a yeah. fairly simple yeah.
1: formula. I mean, there's different variations of it, but the formula is: is that the higher the instrument is in pitch, the more notes it plays in a given time, oh. the faster. And the lower the instrument is in pitch, the fewer notes it plays during the same time, period, or slower.
0: There, there, there may not be an answer to this, but are they, are there um, certain time, time signatures or like uh, things that are unique rhythmically about that kind of music? I mean, is that uh,
1: well? It, it, Sort of yes and sort of no. It works out to be what we would call four-four most of the it's time, four, four. not always, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because that, they don't think about rhythm in terms of measures and okay. Uh They think about rhythm in terms of uh, intervals of time that they wait to do their next thing. And so sometimes I would have the kids just improvise on the gamelan and I would say, you play a note every three beats, you play a note every five, you play a note every seven, and things like that. So they just count one. You band, you know? and sometimes when That's it worked right. the results were awesome they sounded very uh almost minimalistic like steve something steve writes. <laughs> right right um, so it was almost like uh, instant minimalism just add uh-huh. water insert
0: <laughs> did you uh, did you compose for it
1: your students yes i did, you did? yeah yes yeah. in fact the tape i send you will be one because we would have these interdisciplinary units yeah and one of them was earth sea and sky okay. and that was the year i made the gallon orchestra it's recycled instruments and so we actually did a piece called Earth, Sea, and Sky, Sweet. where uh, although the parts were written out, they didn't have to read them. Right. If that makes sense, oh, I, would, is, yeah. you, I could teach them the part by rote quite easily.
0: Did they? Uh, is there? There's different musical scales as well that they're using uh, usually. Well, we didn't use
1: them? gamelon scales because yeah. those are tuned in non-Western ways. That's what I was going to just, ask. Yeah, to, especially to kids who were raised on Western music, it would yeah. just sound terrible. For sure. So what I did was. Um, I basically uh, tuned the entire gamelan to the notes E flat, F, A flat, B flat, and C. Okay. Okay. A pentatonic scale with one note added for fudge factor. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Now, what I could do is I had on some instruments, uh, some twangers, if you, if a kid could read music, I would have an A natural available okay. at the top, and if in other cases I would have a B natural available at the bottom. Sure. Uh, I, made a, uh, I made my own bass instrument for them, huh. which uh, you'll see in the video. It, it looks like a tall, um, it looks like a wedge, so the kids called it the wedge because okay. it was this big wedge-shaped thing. I made that out of, uh, you know, the wound strings off a piano that I had salvaged. Yeah. And so they were very low, and I actually had them play that with a bow, so not only could they play these twangers with mallets, they could pluck them, and they could play them with bows. Right.
0: That's really cool. Um, this is just because I'm curious uh, what when not necessarily part of the conversation but uh, what um, like non-Western musical scales like what's what are like um, are we talking like so if you have like whatever ABC there are in between those notes, I mean, the like Indonesian, Indonesian musical scales might be something in between, like what we're used to hearing, like thirds and fifths. You know what I mean? Is that? Well,
1: they're all derived from the same harmonic overtone series. Okay. In fact, if you were going to say that there was some archetypal element in music, you would have to say that the physics of music that we hear are derived from the overtone series. Okay. But you can derive notes from the overtone series that are not what we would call in tune with western scales because western scales had been modified to what's called the tempered system. Okay. So that otherwise, you know, if you know back in the Baroque you could play something in C major but then if you play, try to play in C sharp major it would be all out of tune. I see. So the scale had to be tempered and all twelve tones had to be equally spaced in order for music to work in all keys. Now, uh, honest to God Gamelon scales, uh, one of them is called the pelog, and the pelog is basically a pentatonic scale similar to the one I used for the uh, um, School on it. Okay. but just the way the notes are derived from the harmonic overtonal series—they're what's called Pythagorean right. der- derivations—and so—and they can go either way; they can go up or down. It, it would be a very complicated technical thing to tell you. Oh yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Um, if you going back to Harry Parch, yeah. Harry Parch worked out the mathematics of microtonal scales um, in huge detail in his book *Genesis of the Music*. Okay, but. It's interesting to note that gamelan in Indonesia, each gamelan ensemble is is belongs to its location, like its village, and they all have slight variations of their own scales. So you can't move a gamelan orchestra from one place to another and have it interface with the rest. I think they're making standardized ones now, but uh, in the traditional gamelan, the scale that they use might be different in each place. It might the scale might be modified to reflect something about the local culture. Okay. Um, I think that's about as far into that as I should get. <laughs> that's
0: great, yeah, that sounds like a whole other episode that yeah. I'm going to have to focus on, you know? Um.
1: And that also is interesting, that is, that I'm, going to, I'm going to make lemons out of that. Yeah. Make the lemonade out of that particular set of lemons too, because right. I can't play the piano anymore.
0: I was going to ask, how, how is that going? Are you, are you I, able to, you know? Well,
1: you know, I think uh, from now on, music has to come out of my head. Okay. It can't come through my fingers. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a huge improviser. I mean, you can hear the piano parts I wrote in the song. Mm-hmm. I could play those. Right. Not, not a problem.
0: It did. It reminded me of an improvisational style, actually, as I was listening to it. I was
1: a huge yeah. improviser. I used yeah. to improvise constantly, mm-hmm. and I, I also worked through both books of the Chopin Etudes. I, I wasn't a great pianist, but I was no—I was no, uh, no slouch. Sure, sure. Um, and the piano was like central to my existence from the time I was about six years old. So it's kind of been an interesting shift.
0: I, I suspect it's interesting as far as yeah, writing goes, because I mean, if I had to suddenly stop. Because I, I always do first drafts longhand. Just, it's just mm-hmm. the way I work. But if I had to suddenly stop doing that and talk, that speak at every first draft, it would probably change the, my entire creation process. Well, Have you noticed a difference in how you're...
1: It's changing how I think about how you it. Think about it actually it. makes me want to rely even more on the human voice. Mm-hmm. I can't take my hands and do all these fancy-dancy technical passages anymore. Right. Now I know how to write them if I if I need one, but you know when I'm 25 years old I want to show off everything I can do. You know, know, fill it up. What I can do, you know, do the piano, and uh, my composition teachers at the time would say, "We're looking forward to the day when you write music with your brain and not your fingers." Wow! And I'm finally there.
0: Nice, yeah. Well, congratulations on that. (laughs) I'm finding that uh, Nirvana (laughs) compositional Nirvana. Well,
1: one thing I've discovered is it takes longer. Right. And so I'm glad I'm not in a position where I have to produce things quickly. Right. I used to produce things quickly. In fact, I iconic mass I produced very quickly. I prided myself on my ability to do it fast right. um, without being too sloppy. But now I, I relish the opportunity to do it slow. Nice.
0: Yeah, I, that's what I try to tell people is, you know, it's hard to rush. Unless you're on a deadline for, you know, it's, it's hard. To, your, your books or whatever, you, they never get finished. Like when you want them to. You know what I mean, you always oh, you, you right. can you can try to self-impose deadlines, but I did want to ha- I did want to ask you about something we were talking earlier a little bit about uh, how you, we were talking about film composers uh, yes. who are maybe well-versed in a lot of different styles, oh, yeah. presumably because they're scoring for lots of different kinds of music. But like the idea of like com- like um, classical music as like a has become more like a soundtrack in modern times. I mean, yes. so, so that people can use it for movies and video games. I mean, yes. is that something you're Noticing
1: at all? Oh six? yes. Yeah. Um, uh, now, in in a sense, that kind of music, you could say it's an archetype. Okay. A stylistic archetype, you know, just like when you hear blues, you know it's blues. Yes. Um, yes. Now I, recently, I have seriously become a serious fanatical fan of a movie that just came out recently called *Elita Battle Angel*. Okay. You have to see, see that. that. Yeah. It's awesome. It's based on a manga by Yukito Kishiro, a Japanese comic book artist. Cool. And it's it's an awesome, but the score was composed by a fellow named Tom Holtenberg, I think I have that right, and he goes by the name Junkie XL. He did a marvelous score that sounds like a combination of Carl Orff, um, who did the, uh, the the planets, Gustav Holst, and Dubstep. Oh my gosh! And it works, <laughs> and it works beautifully. And so you know. I, I mean, I understood what he would... Now, I, I knew why he was doing it. Because when he looked at that movie, he said, what is the style of music you should use yeah. for a dystopian cyborg nightmare 500 years into the future? Right. You know, what What would you... And I think he made some excellent choices. He's got a, a good mix of uh, acoustic. A lot of it was recorded from live acoustic instruments huh. that, that sounds very classical, and also electronic sources. Right. Um, so, you know, I think he, he made a very... He, he made a seamless, stylistic transition between all those. You don't notice any of the breaks, Gosh. and when you don't notice the seams in something, that's a good job.
0: That's awesome. I got to check that out. I think I read a blurb about that actually, but I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Now, well, yeah, you know, don't
1: go by the critic score and Robin De Yeah, tomatoes, well, yeah. Go you know, by the audience score. <laughs> the soundtrack, yeah.
0: The soundtrack the alone soundtrack sounds is worth it. Awesome. You can
1: find the soundtrack on YouTube and okay. just listen to
0: it. I I'm, like, I'm going to do that. Yeah, that sounds really. Cool. I think he's
1: one of the better, one of the better film composers, one of the better soundtracks, and there's so many good ones. Right. Um, you know, somebody asked me once, some older person once right. uh, asked me, uh, we don't have any, or said, we don't have any Mozarts anymore. I said, that's not true. Right. We have too many. Right. We have so many. For instance, I think this era is the most, p- most fl- eff- the biggest efflorescence of songwriting oh. since the Elizabethan era, yes. at least. Yeah. I sure. mean, uh, there are, the, the number of, of top-ranked, songwriters just the simple song forms out there right? Just and there's a new one along seems like there's a new one along every year and they run the gamut from you know the most serious minded to the most you know bubblegum But
0: right and, and, the, and the nice thing is now that you can basically um, I mean someone was asking me the other day like what what the if there's any good popular music anymore you know oh there's so much and there's so much but also I was like I don't really know because I sort of like I curate my, what I listen to so heavily like I, what I listen to is so specific I never like I just all my playlists are custom for me like I don't know I don't even know what the what is popular <laughs> well
1: both my own uh, my so. own daughter as she grew up and the kids at the school have, have brought me back into that to yeah cool what's yeah. out there right and uh, some of it is there's always dreck sure but some of it is a lot better than you would think
0: um, I agree especially just from a songwriting you know, there perspective. there are people
1: you know. my age who say oh all the good all the good pop music was in the 70s and 80s and, right. no.
0: <laughs> yeah that's not yeah that's, not, that's true. not true I think melodically especially it's really strong and I mean yeah the, the guitar solo solo was maybe dead but but uh, other than that you know it's uh, some good stuff you know.
1: you know you heard the point about what do you get when you when you coat the when you put a chinchilla for a cover on your bass <laughs> a half hour bass solo yeah <laughs> <laughs> you have to think about that over a while. That's good.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like it.
1: But you heard the one about the drummer that uh, that um, he had to smash the windows out of his own car? He yeah. accidentally locked himself in.
0: Oh, <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. That's good. I know lots That's of good. those. The ability I like to it. tell kids jokes is important.
0: Well, wow, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just saw there was a good cartoon in the uh, New Yorker I was reading today. It was uh, it had a Drawings of a of, of like a violin, a viola, a cello, and an upright bass, and it said like a musician's perspective, and it said violin, viola, cello, bass. Then, then like a like a listener's perspective, violin, bigger violin, bigger violin, bigger violin. You know, just yes. like you know, like we don't know you know unless you, you know, it's all violins you know unless you know. You seen the,
1: the mean violin, the saxophone, and TV. No, it's sax and violins on TV. Nice. <laughs> That,
0: that's, that's the name of the uh, that's going to be the name of the episode I think. <laughs> Saxon violins. All yeah. TV. Well,
1: in order to become a good band director, I had to have a repertoire of jokes. Oh. Yeah. know yeah. I could go on and on. About it. In fact, I even went online and looked some of them up. <laughs>
0: you didn't have enough. You, need, you needed more. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I had to keep it. I had to keep it school safe. You see? Yeah. Well. That, yeah, that cuts out the sax violins.
0: For sure, most of them. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if you, if you one more question if that's okay I was, something else I've been thinking about as we're talking it's come up it's popped in mind a couple of times I was just curious about your take on this thing I've been, I think about sometimes which is like um, you know classical music like whatever Mozart or uh, Mozart symphony has been played you know thousands tens of thousands of times since it was written you know so like sometimes um it's, we can't really hear how it was when it first came out, like because oh, yes. because the musicians are so practiced at yeah. it now. We don't have that. We've kind of lost that spontaneity, maybe um, of or um, not intimidation, but like uh, the newness, like the sort of hesitancy when you're playing something new and the energy that might be behind it.
1: Well, that's only to be expected when you're talking yeah. about things that are centuries old.
0: Sure, and I just um, didn't know if that's yeah. something you had thought what about. One way or... you can
1: kind of recover that, yeah, is to say take the first movement of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. I mentioned that already. Sure. Compare it to the Haydn drum roll symphony in E-flat. Okay. Listen to the first movement of the Haydn drum roll, which is a masterpiece, by the way. Listen to the first movement of the Beethoven and think, what do you think if you were, if, if, if the Haydn was like the highest quality thing you'd ever heard in your life, and then you hear the Beethoven, what would you think? Right. Um, for instance, people say, why was there a riot at the premier of the Rite of Spring? So well, go listen to Nuages by Debussy. Right. And then you'll see why that seems like such a radical break. Right. Uh, Chopin, Chopin's harmony anticipated modern jazz by how, uh-huh. 150 years. And if you want to know why Chopin was so highly criticized and why it was such a, a freak out for people at the time, go listen to Mendelssohn, who's also a master composer, and and just compare and contrast it. it. And then you'll get a little bit of, you'll, it'll bring back a little bit. For why that seemed like such a new thing yeah and i think it caused a problem i think it caused a lot of composers later to think oh my music won't be worth much to the future unless i do something new and radical and different and shocking right and i think that led a lot of people straight yeah i hear
0: you they're almost chasing chasing something that's yes, not even possible they
1: had, they had a linear idea of musical progress and that was very much in force by my teachers in the, in the conservatory most of them was that there was a linear progress in music that could be predicted yeah, I so, oh this will be next right. this will be next I don't think it works that way
0: especially especially now when we're sort of dealing with um, you know like reconciliation in the arts and other places and just sort of rediscovering you know composers of color who were overlooked you know earlier in the century I mean I think our Remember idea of what's R. good
1: Nathaniel Deck.
0: no uh uh-uh, uh no.
1: he's an African American composer yeah and uh i I looked into his music about 20 years ago cool and uh i thought it was awesome and he actually taught i believe in greensboro Hmm. r nathaniel Depp, d-e-t-t check that
0: out i will for sure for sure and uh
1: he did one thing that kind of became a hit that was kind of like a almost like a rag tiny two-step thing i can't remember the name of it that's how he attracted attention in those days he finally like scott joplin you had to do a hit before you if you were a, if you were an African American you had yeah. to do something that was a, a hit before anybody paid any attention to it. absolutely
0: that's cool yeah well, and then, yeah so we just sort of reevaluate what's good and what's important as history yeah, progresses. Your, uh, uh,
1: there are things on YouTube about that cool, your, yeah. I can't remember the name of the, it was something two step or something like that nice. it was a I think it was called Juba and it was a, a, just a fun rollicking uh Lively, joyous kind of thing. Actually, there's a competition every year for the Charles R. Robb Foundation. Okay. I've never entered it, but I'm tempted to. What he, he, during between the years about 1920 and 1945, he went out in the West, yeah. New Mexico and Arizona, and recorded the music of Native American tribes, those that were left. Wow. And he donated all these recordings to the University of New Mexico. I think it's New Mexico. Okay. And every year they have a contest where you submit compositions based on on something from their archive cool and uh, they had they had songs for every stage of life they had songs for different animals they had coming of age songs they had old age songs they had dog songs, had dog songs. you know buffalo songs you know if, if yeah. there was something in their environment that was important yeah they had songs about it kind of like a, a Native American Rule 34 <laughs> can, you, uh, can,
0: you, can you access are those online or yes they are okay. yes
1: uh, I, I, it's another only call saying yeah that bookmark
0: cool you because please do no it that, that. that sounds amazing that, would, that sounds like a good way to blow a work day for sure oh, oh yeah <laughs> so, oh yeah if not too yeah, I love that kind of stuff yeah just um get back to the kind of roots it's great i, build, well, yeah.
1: uh, I listened to it enough that it confirms something I had long thought about yeah. musical phraseology about how a musical phrase especially a one, seems to start with more energy and then go down because you, right. you're running out of breath right because right. you sing a phrase so the uh, Native American songs will start on a tone that they chant and then they'll go down and relax as they run shorter breaths. so the pitch will go down oh. and they'll be followed by another phrase like that. And this reminded me very much of some of my studies of the medieval chant literature. Oh, sure. And it's based, once again, you know, you get this musical phrasing from the capacity of breath. Because they had to breathe, the, had the monks breath. had to breathe at a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Now, when you write for brass instruments, that's another thing useful to remember. One of the reasons I'm using such a large brass section in in the piece I'm writing now is to give them a chance to switch off because you can exhaust yourself so quickly playing a brass instrument. So we associate going up in pitch with an increase in tension. That's right. Going down in pitch with a decrease in tension. Right. Because if you saw somebody across the room and you holler at them you're increasing the breath pressure, you're, you're actually, you actually have to increase the tension in your vocal cords and your lungs to make the louder sound to get tuned, sure. and it's probably a higher pitch sound. Whereas if you're talking to someone like I am to you, yeah. the phrase may start and then fall because, you know, I don't have to shout at you and the, the breath goes down. And yeah. I think that, I don't know how, but I'm sure that plays into oriental languages that are tone languages yeah. as well.
0: What are what are the Native American scales like? Music uh, musically, I don't, I'm not sure I can really even imagine a, uh, how it sounds. They were not
1: necessarily conscious of specific scales. Yeah, um, they they had a lot in common with some other um, pre-tech. I will say primitive. I'll say pre-technological yeah. peoples. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for instance, the Anomami would have flutes. And they would not have a scale, they would take the flute and blow it before they had any holes in it. And then the spirit of the flute would tell them where to put the holes. And so each, each instrument had its own scale, which was supposed to represent its own spirit and its own voice. And what's That's amazing cool. about that is that it's not that they're dissonant sometimes, it's how harmonious they get sometimes with this. Because I don't, I don't think they had any idea or any care yeah. about a scale it's just this, so oh there's a little there's a little indentation of the wood here it's telling me to drill a hole there it's things like that and so they would make an instrument based on the spirit of it that also goes for bone instruments they would make those because they would try and represent the spirit of the animal from which the bone came there are bone flutes though from the neolithic period that have been found okay. stunning bone flutes that have seven note and pentatonic scales so you there were also some that actually very carefully constructed their scales. They were aware of it. Very aware of it, yeah. because they were in tune, and they they don't play the whole instruments. They make computer take computer topography of them and they make a replica. This was a a, a very well tuned seven note scale. So, uh, you know, that's remarkable, right? yeah. Well, I don't think it's remarkable when you think that these were people that all they had to do all their lives is use their ears as a sensory organ to study the environment around them, which is something we've lost.
0: That's a good point. An
1: ability we've lost, yeah. And now, noises from the surrounding environment are something we shut out and try to avoid, yeah. They increase our stress,
0: we're still bombarded by it, we're still bombarded by yeah. it,
1: yeah. Pollution, yeah. Going out in the woods and sitting for a long time. I'm going to write a piece, I've got ideas for it, it's called The Woodlands Point. Yeah. It's going to be based on the idea that you go out in the woods somewhere and you sit down for a whole day and all you do is listen to everything that happens. Right. Somewhere where there's no human noises, there's no you know, anthropomorphic uh, noise pollution. Sure. Yeah. You know, And you just sit and listen all day. And, then, and I've, I've done that a few times, I've done it, I have to know that, that it's almost like the sounds of a day, like a summer's day. Are the movements
0: the
1: huh. You hear the different kinds of birds at different times. Different kinds, different animals move at different times. Right. Um, you have thunderstorms in the afternoon. Uh, Beethoven, his pastoral symphony, I think he he did yeah. some of this too, and, okay. and did his best to to uh, recreate.
0: I think on like a personal level too. Like I, I've noticed, like I I'm a, I run a lot, and like I. Uh, Especially, okay, run. <laughs> yeah. like especially in the woods, like I've noticed yeah. like how much I'm listening. I'm really am listening more than I'm doing anything else because you're listening for snakes and like if you're on the road, you're listening for cars, you know. But, but your hearing is can really be like finely tuned, and mine is sometimes because I I can recognize if a car is behind me or a mile off you know I mean you learn to rec- if you train yourself you kind of can reclaim that skill but I don't think I would have that otherwise you know but like the environmental
1: noise pollution in a modern technological society yeah. is so bad that people lose their hearing and I've lost a good portion of my right. hearing by the time I was 50 I had lost most of the high end of my hearing Jeez, I don't yeah. think that happened to people in the past right.
0: and certainly they were able it, I just feel like every noise is just it's just so constant cars yeah. and
1: power tools and you know machinery and yeah loud blaring music and
0: everywhere you go yeah so. one thing
1: i would tell the kids is i would show them a little uh video on what happens to your ear when you get in one of these cars with the bass things when you close all the windows be, you know, yeah yeah you know they're gonna they're gonna have hearing aids when they're because
0: your eardrum or whatever yeah is, there, uh, there's yeah. a
1: difference between volume of a sound and sound pressure level okay sound pressure level is about how much air is being moved and if you have that in confined space it's literally Doing this to your ear gotcha. It's not even a sound, it's a physical push. push. Yeah. Yeah. So we do a lot of damage to our hearing. Um, that's one of the reasons I decided after I left Cleveland that I would never leave the city. Right, right. Sirens. Just the noise, yeah, yeah. the sirens. Yeah. Well, they also induce anxiety. Yeah, uh, big time. Over time, not necessarily, you know, I, I don't get anxious when I hear a siren, but if all I hear is sirens for six days, you know, I want
0: to get out of there. It's funny. Uh, it's, a, it's leaf blowers for me. Like a, blowers something about awesome. that is so distracting. I just can't, yeah, I can't get over it. There are a lot of
1: spectrum
0: it. sound. From, oh. yeah. Yeah. You, you know, especially if they're starting and stopping it over and over again. It's just like, I can't. You like know, fingernails it. on a blackboard with a diesel
1: engine yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And that's our show. Our shows. Uh, thanks again to Forrest Covington Jr. for taking the time to talk with me and letting some of his work be used on these shows if you want to learn more about Forrest, you can visit www.forestcovington.com That's two R's in Forrest. Thank you, too, uh, to poet Jonathan Farmer, who connected me with Forrest. Jonathan always has a sense of who plays well with others. Uh, finally, thank you all for listening. Visit us on the web, a440pod.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at a440pod. And let's jam again soon.